And we will be in the 21st section of Psalm 119 tonight, which means we only have one more Wednesday night in Psalm 119. Unless we start it all over again because we already forgot what the first part was of. <laughs> Psalm 119, verse number 161 this evening. And we're going to think about the thought that thy word is my treasure. Thy word is my treasure. You know, Jesus talked in the New Testament about how you and I ought to lay up treasure in heaven, where moth and rust doth not corrupt, where thieves do not break in and steal. And Jesus gave this reason for why he said that. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in this section of Psalm 119, I believe that we really see David's heart, his focus, if you will, was on God's Word and on his relationship with God. He treasured his relationship with God, and he treasured God's Word. And the outcome in his life, I think, is fairly evident in the book of Psalms, as much of Psalms was written by David himself. And the man that David became, the kingdom that he ended up having, was due in large part to God's hand upon him and to the fact that he treasured God and he treasured God's word. But this evening, let's go ahead and get into the text. Psalm 119, verse 161, he says, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. So this evening, as we think about David's treasure, how he treasured God's word, we'll look at two areas. We'll see first David's firm focus, his firm focus, and second of all this evening, we'll see his expectant focus. But David's firm focus, we'll see that first in the first verse of this section, verse number 161. He says, princes have persecuted me without a cause. Now stop and think about what David is saying here. Princes have persecuted me without a cause. That word persecuted means to follow after earnestly. If someone is persecuting you, it means that they're using every opportunity. They're looking for every avenue, for every way in which they can follow after you to do you harm, to drag you down, to get you in trouble. David here, he says, you know, not just my next door neighbor is persecuting me or Bob the plumber over there is persecuting me. I don't know if they had plumbers in David's day. Anyway, no, he says, princes have persecuted me. If you think about princes, princes would have been those who, though they were not the highest rulers in the land, they would have been those who carried some authority. Their word and what they said had some weight. Truly, David here, he could have said, in speaking of Saul, the king has persecuted me. We don't know when he wrote this, though, and he says princes 
have persecuted me without a cause. You know, it's one thing for someone at work or for someone without any, any real authority or status to persecute us. That's distressing and distracting enough. That tends to consume our attention. But if you think about someone who's in power persecuting you, that's a fairly serious situation. It, I mean, imagine with me tonight that you are the subject of persecution from our state senator, Tom Cotton. Let's say for some reason your name has come across his desk and he's upset with you. And so now he is going to use every single avenue in his purview to come after you personally, to besmirch your name, to drag you down, to get you in trouble. He's going to look for every law. He's going to start searching traffic cameras to see all the times that you've broken traffic law. Like he's going to He's going to throw the book at you. He's going, to pers- he's going to make it his personal mission to destroy you. That would be kind of distressing, right? If, if he really started to come after you or I, I would imagine that he could probably find some things to get us in trouble. I, I accidentally ran through a red light just the other night. I was halfway through the intersection when I realized that it was red, and they had the cameras in it, too. Right? But no, I I mean, think with David here what it means. Princes have persecuted me without a cause. David was under some intense persecution from those who were in power. There There were folks who were out there and they were trying to bring him down. But you you put yourself in his shoes, you think about where would your focus be in a situation like that? What would be the thing that you think about? I imagine you'd probably want to retain a lawyer to help defend you. Well, I mean, think about how much does it cost to put a lawyer on retainer? Now we've got a problem. I don't have enough money, I don't think, to get a a high-powered enough lawyer, a big enough lawyer on my side, on retainer, to help me deal with this kind of problem. And certainly, though David wasn't looking for lawyers... This is an instance, this is a circumstance that's overwhelming. This is something that's going to consume your attention. It would cause some fear and some trepidation. If you got a letter in the the mail tomorrow from the IRS, and it said, we have found some discrepancies, and we're coming after you. That's going to put some fear in your heart, right? Even if you know... Okay, I've, I've done the best that I can. I've lived by the book. They're persecuting me without a cause. That's going to cause some trepidation. That's going to cause some fear. It's probably going to consume your thinking a little bit. But you'll notice what David says here in verse 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause. He hadn't done anything wrong. He says, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. Now this word awe... You and I, we we tend to use the word awe. Something is awe-inspiring. It's something that's jaw-dropping, something that's just amazing. It it was awesome. But the way that David is using it here, the word awe also means things that cause fear, things that cause trembling and dread. And David says that, you know, princes have persecuted me without a cause. There's this massive 
thought-consuming, fearful situation that's in front of me. But you know what? I'm more in awe, in reverence, in trembling of God's Word. Yeah, there's this thing in my life, but God's Word is more consuming to me. I'm not going, in other words, what he's saying is I'm not going to allow the situations of life to get my focus off of God's Word. In the midst of all of this, I fear God more than I fear these men. They've done it without a cause. I know that I'm following God's Word. I know that I'm where I'm supposed to be. I fear God and His Word more. More than the princes that are persecuting me without a cause. So we see David's firm focus in that he stood in awe of God's Word more than the overwhelming circumstances around him. Second of all this evening, we'll see that his firm focus is revealed to us in how he rejoices at God's Word. He rejoices at God's Word. Verse number 162, he says, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. To rejoice means to be bright, cheerful, to be glad, to make mirth. I mean, I think we all understand what he's talking about here. Rejoice as one that findeth great spoil. I mean, imagine yourself. You might be more reserved. I tend to be a more reserved person. Sometimes I have to tell my wife, this is my happy face. She tells me I don't smile enough. But you know, even reserved people, if you stumble upon millions of dollars in buried treasure in your backyard, I imagine even myself would probably get a little exuberant. It it would probably spread around to some friends and family members fairly quickly about what I've discovered. I would probably make it known. I, I might even crack a big smile on such an occasion. It would be a fairly joyful event. It doesn't happen every day, so there's kind of the intrigue of that. Great spoil, you know, it's something that you didn't work for, and you come, you come across it, and he uses the word great. Great spoil. So, I mean, picture a large mountain of treasure that's now yours. That's a pretty cool circumstance. That doesn't happen every day. That kind of excites you a little bit. But he says, I rejoice at thy word, just like someone who rejoices at great spoil. Now, David was a man of war. He was accustomed to going in with the men in battle. And in battle, as you destroy someone else and you kill them, you become the owner of their property, right? So if you go in conquest against your enemies, they've been raiding your town and killing your cattle and killing your people, and so you go and you wipe out their city. All of the goods in their city become yours. And now as David and his men, they run through the streets, they break down doors, they come into houses, and they're looking for things of value. And you can imagine a guy, he breaks down a door, he comes into this humble little dwelling, he doesn't expect anything to be there, and it's, oh, this mountain of gold. He found great spoil. You can imagine that guy shouting a little bit, being a little bit excited, right? David says in the same way, I rejoice at thy word. That's quite a 
a description of David's joy, David's exuberance when it comes to God's Word. Now ask yourself, does that describe you? Do you have the same level of excitement when it comes to hearing from God? David here says, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. David says, you know, God, hearing from you to me is like finding great treasure. Hearing from you is like becoming a multimillionaire at the flip of a switch. God, I rejoice when I get to hear from you. Do you wake up each morning excited at the opportunity to hear from God? Do you get excited about church services because it's an opportunity to hear from God? Do you and I treat hearing from God and His Word the same way as we would rejoice if we stumbled across $3 million of buried gold in our backyard tomorrow morning? Ouch. You know, if I'm honest... I don't think I do. I don't think I rejoice to the same level as I might rejoice if I came across that imaginary pot of gold, right? Oh, that we ought to. Oh, that hearing from God and hearing from His Word would hold more sway over our hearts than the worthless riches of this world. You know, you, you get great spoil... It goes away. You amass great riches, you die. And it's all left here. The only stuff that matters, the only things that really matter in this life is hearing from God. The things of eternity, the things of God. Oh, that you and I would rejoice at God's word like we do at great spoil. So we see David's focus in how he rejoiced at God's word. Third of all, we see his firm focus on God and on his word in verse 163. He says, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Abhor. Abhor means to regard as an abomination, to detest something. He hated it. He abhorred lying. Now, this is interesting because if we remember back, we think about David. David is one who, in the scriptures, we find participating in lying. There are instances recorded for us in Scripture where David lies. He goes before uh, Achish, the king of the Philistines, and he lies before him. He acts like a madman and he he dribbles and he drools. He's putting on a, a fake show. He wasn't a madman. He was lying. He, he lied when he went and he said that he was on an errand from King Saul. And he ate of the showbread, and he took the, the sword of Goliath, of Gath. He lied on that occasion. There were other instances and times in David's life when he lied. You know, I, in the scriptures, it, it records how David went out to battle. And he would go, and he would destroy the enemies of Israel. And then he would come back to the king of Gath. And he would tell him, yeah, I went against the, this tribe of, of Israel. I was over there fighting against the tribe of Benjamin. That's where all these riches and things are from. David lied repeatedly. But here David says that he hates and abhors lying. David had apparently grown in his understanding of God and his word. 
you know, David was one who had also experienced being on the receiving end of lying. David was one who had been lied against. He was one who had felt great heartache and turmoil because of the lies that were being spread about him. God had done a work in his heart, and here he strongly states his detestation, his abhorrence, his hatred of lying. And he had fixed his heart, he had fixed his attention rather than on lying. He says, thy law do I love. Thy law do I love. You know, God's law, God's word is free from lying. God doesn't lie to us. God doesn't mix things up. God doesn't use sleight of hand. God is honest and upfront with you and I. He hated lying, but he loved God's law. Fourth of all, he tells us that he loves God's word and its purity so much that it caused him to praise God. Verse 164, he says, seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Seven times a day. You think about seven times a day doing something, I mean, that requires some diligence. I like to eat. I don't know, I might eat seven times a day. It requires some diligence, though. You know, you get busy doing stuff and you forget to eat sometimes. But seven times a day, he says, I praise thee because of thy righteous judgment. You, you really begin to see the focus that David had on God and on his words. And doing something seven times a day requires some, some forethought. It requires some planning. It requires some structuring to make sure that this happens David says seven times a day he was praising God because of his righteous judgments. His righteous judgments. You know, many times here in Psalm 119, we've seen how David spoke of meditation, how he spoke of praising God, how he spoke of waking in the middle of the night to pray, to offer thanksgiving to God. David had a habit. He had built into his life the habits of, of being with God, walking with God, being in God's word, meditating, praying, praising God. David had a focus on his relationship with God. You know, you and I, we ought to learn, like David, to have such a focus on our relationship like, with God, like he did. It'd be a good thing for you and I to set seven reminders on our phone throughout the day Hey, have you praised God? You know, you and I, we certainly have much to praise God for. We have many things that we can be thankful to Him for. Many things that we can lift up praise to His name. David says, because of His righteous judgments. David was looking, maybe he was looking around at those around him. The unrighteous judgments of the land. And he praised God because God is a righteous judge. Because God's judgments are righteous. They are true. They are faithful. They don't change. We see that David had a major focus on God and on his word. He loved God's word and its purity so much that he praised God seven times a day. Then the last thing we'll notice that speaks of David's focus on God and on his word this evening is there in verse number one, uh, 165. 
I was looking at the wrong section. That gets confusing fast. 165. David says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Great. The word great means much, many, abounding. David says, I have abounding peace because I love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. You think about folks today. Our world is a world full of noise. People have noisy thoughts. They have noisy souls. They have minds that are cluttered with all of the distractions and the noisiness and the turmoil of today. We have devices that keep us uh, ever in a constant state of turmoil. They aid in that. People today are they're captured with their thinking. Peace is not something that describes most people's lives. David says here, though, that great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You think about David in particular, often through this psalm, the, the thing that David spoke about the most, the thing that brought David turmoil the most in Psalm 119 was affliction. And his affliction, we surmise from what he says, is one particularly brought on by his enemies. It's brought on by other people who would destroy him, other people who would drag him down, other people who would consume him, who would, who would kill him if they could. You know, that would be kind of disturbing. It'd be kind of offensive if someone's trying to kill you. I would find that offensive, right? But David says, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. In the midst of David's life of enemies and those trying to drag him down, those trying to kill him, he said that he had abounding tranquility. He was calm in the midst of, of persecution, in, in the midst of uh, those that would destroy him. David is calm. He's fixed and fixated, you'll notice. Great peace have who? Have they which love thy law. Which love thy law. Those that love the law of God, David says, have great peace. So then I look at my own life and I say, okay, well, do I have great peace? And if I don't, what does that say about the level of love that I have for God's law? You know, ultimately, if I love God, if I love his law, I love his word, as I ought to, it's going to bring about great peace in my life. Because loving God's law, loving God's word, being in his word is going to constantly, consistently adjust my perspective. It's going to adjust my thinking. It's going to help me view the circumstances and the situations of this life as under his control. It's going to help me realize that if I'm following after him, if I love him and I love his law as I ought to, then nothing that happens to me in this life is out of his control. He's not surprised by any of it. He's not taken back like, oh, 
I didn't know that was going to happen to them. Oh, no. No. He knows the end from the beginning far better than I do. And I can trust him. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. If, if my life is given over to him wholly, and I love him, and I love his word as I ought to, and my thoughts are continually being adjusted to remember that, it's going to bring about great tranquility. That word offend, an offense is a stumbling. An occasion of stumbling, a stumbling block, something that's thrown in your way. We're familiar with what it means to be offended. If somebody will say or do something, and you get offended. You'll stumble at it. And it causes you to get caught up in thinking and worrying about that situation and trying to scheme and figure out how to either get out of it and make them okay with you or how to get back at them. Or... And it's something that can, it can ruin your day, right? Somebody does or says something that offends you and... The thoughts of God, the thoughts of His Word, they're gone. Your day is now, it's dominated by this. David says, you know what, though? You love God and His Word as you ought to. You'll have great peace. Get your mind off of those things and get it fixated on God and on His Word. Hold your place here in Philippians 4, or in, in Psalm 119, and turn over with me to Philippians 4, if you will. Philippians 4 and verse number 6, the Apostle Paul here says, Be careful for nothing. We're familiar with that word careful. It means to worry, to be anxious. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, if you and I get our focus on Him, we get our focus on His love, His control, His omniscience, His omnipotence, we begin to fill our minds with His Word, thinking about God's character, thinking about who He is, thinking about His plan for us, and we really begin to put our focus on Him he promises peace. So if I don't have the peace that I need in the situations of life, it's not because God isn't offering it to me. It's not because God is somehow shortchanging me or not coming through on his end of the bargain. That'd be on me. That'd be on me not having my focus where it needs to be. You know, I kind of like that. I'm happy about that. Because if the problem is on God's end, well, then I can't fix that. But it's never on his end. It's always on my end. He's faithful. So that means no matter how bad the situation is, I can put my focus on him. He can take care of me. He can control it. And I can find the peace that I need in focusing on him. So we see David's firm focus. 
But then last of all this evening, we'll see David's expectant focus. His expectant focus. In verse number 166, he says, Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. You know, this section of Psalm 119 is kind of interesting. There's no real requests here. The one that we looked at last week was almost every single verse was a request to God. He was asking God for something. He was petitioning God. And much of Psalm 119 is that way. But really, in this section, he doesn't make any direct requests of God. It's, it's a lot of uh, talking to God about what has happened and talking about his focus on God and on his word in the midst of these situations. But as we look at verse number 166 here and we kind of switch gears, we'll see that David was not only firm in his focus, but he was expectant in his focus. This is the first time that he invokes the name of God in verse 166. And he says, Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation. I have hoped for thy salvation. We talked a few times now about this word hope, how the biblical word hope is not the way that you and I use it in wishing or, you know, I think that maybe this is going to happen. The word hope in the Bible is a firm belief. He has faith in God. He's looking down the road and he's, he's saying, God, I have faith. I trust in your salvation. He's waiting, yes, he's waiting for the salvation of God, but he's waiting expectantly. He knows that God is going to deliver him. He knows that God's salvation is coming, and so he has hope in God's salvation. We'll notice, we know that David has this hope. We know that David is living expectantly, and he reveals to us several reasons that we can have a, a firm hope this evening in that fact. And really, it's all tied up in his actions. Ultimately, he lives, and he tells us how he lives here in Psalm 119. He lives expectantly waiting for God's salvation. You'll notice the first thing that he does there. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. I've done thy commandments. You know, he was expecting that God was going to deliver him. And he decided, you know what? I believe that God is going to do this. I'm going to live like God tells me to live. I'm not going to live like the world. I'm not going to live according to my own devices, my own desires. Rather, God, I will do thy commandments. I have done thy commandments. He pointed back to a pattern that he had established in his life of following God's word, of following the things that God had said. You know what, this evening, if you and I look to God and we say, God, I, I trust in your salvation. You and I ought to have a, a similar testimony to David that says, God, I've, I've hoped in thy salvation, and I have done thy commandments. Right? You and I are familiar with the idea that if we come to him for salvation from our sins, and then we, we live the same life that we've always been living, we just continue on, we carry on, like, God, I, I come to you, I pray this prayer, now I'm saved, and nothing happens. Nothing is different. There's a problem there, right? There, there's, that would indicate no change of heart. That would indicate no change of life. The book of Corinthians talks about how when we're in Christ, we're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things 
are become new. You know, if there's not stuff becoming new, it causes some question. It ought to cause some serious examination. David could point back and he says, God, I've hoped in thy salvation, and I have done thy commandments. If we're Christians, we ought to live like it. We ought to do the commandments of God. The next thing that David points out in verse number 167, for some reason I keep wanting to look at the section above it, and that is really confusing because it doesn't go together. Verse 167, he says, My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. So not only had he done the commandments of God, he says, My soul hath kept thy testimonies. You know, there's a lot of things, the testimonies of God, right? The testimonies of God are the things that God has declared, the things that God has attested to. He has said, this is true. This is the way to live. This is the way not to live. This is what you should do. You know, there's a lot of things that God has said, the way that you and I ought to live, that the world looks at and scoffs. The world looks at and says, well, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. But it's what God has said. It's what God has declared to be truth. You know, this whole idea that we're sinners, the whole idea that you and I are really lawbreakers and we can't get to heaven on our own. You know, the world scoffs at that. The world would say, well, everyone is basically good. God says, no. No, everyone is corrupt. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins. The world scoffs at that. You know, God talks about how you and I, we ought to follow after him. We ought to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Uh, God talks about, oh, I don't know, about tithe, right? And there's an interesting one. The world looks at that, and we go, whoa, I'm supposed to give God 10% of my money? After the government already takes way more than they should? Right? And it doesn't make any sense to the world. But, you know, you and I, after we've put God to the test, after we've followed Him, and we've done what He commands, you know, I can raise my hand and say, there's a lot of times it doesn't make sense. There's a lot of times the math doesn't add up but, you know, God's never failed me. Every time that I've ever honored what he has said, put it to the test, he's, already, he's always proved himself as faithful. But, you know, to the world's eyes, the testimonies of God, they look like foolishness. David says, my soul hath kept thy testimonies. He said, God, your testimonies are worth keeping. I don't care what those around me say. I don't care what the world says. I will keep your testimonies. God, what you have to say is true. Next, he goes on there in verse 167. He says, I love them exceedingly. He had gone beyond the, the point of just saying, well, God, I'll do what you tell me to do. He says, no, I love them exceedingly. You know, brethren, really, when you look at the ways of God and you compare them to the ways of the world, you look at the end of one who follows God and the end of one who follows the wisdom of this world. I love the testimonies of God. Yeah, you know, there's other things that I could be doing tonight. I like a lot of different hobbies. 
I like doing a lot of different things. I don't like sitting at home and just twiddling my thumbs. Like I like to be out doing things and get involved. And on a Wednesday night and on a Sunday, there's a lot of other things that I could be doing. I could fill my schedule with fun, enjoyable things to do. But you know what? I love the things of God. I love the law of God. And I've seen the end of those who follow the world system, who do what the world says. They live life to the fullest in pursuit of themselves. And I've seen the, the opposite end. I've seen the end of those who have poured out their life in pursuit of God, in pursuit of knowing Him, in pursuit of winning souls to Christ, in pursuit of serving Him. It doesn't even hold a candle. I want that kind of end. I want to reach the end of my life and say, wow, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me from a life of meaninglessness, a life of foolish choices, a life of destruction. Thank you for what you've given me. David says, not only did he keep God's testimonies, he loved them exceedingly. Verse number 168, he says, I've kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. I've kept thy precepts and thy testimonies. He lays out before God, he says, God, you know, all of my ways are before you. You know, nothing that you or I do is hidden from God. It's not. He, he knows all of it. In fact, he knows what you're going to do tomorrow. You don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. You might have some plans, but God knows what you are going to do tomorrow and what you won't do tomorrow. God's not surprised. He's not taken back by things that happen to us, and he's not surprised by the things that we do. You know, God doesn't love you any less because of the things that you do wrong tomorrow or the things that you did wrong today. All of your ways are before him. He already knows. Sometimes we try to avoid God as if not coming to God in prayer and not confessing our sins and not making it right with Him, not owning up to it, is going to somehow, like, oh, well, God doesn't know about it because I haven't come and prayed about it. No, God knows. David recognizes this fact. He says, all my ways are before thee. He recognizes that, and he says, because of that, I've kept thy precepts and thy testimonies. He recognized he had trained himself to realize that God is watching. God's watching. You know, people at work will often increase production when the boss walks in the room. It's amazing. And you know, it's, it's kind of comical too. Because sometimes people, they're really, really bad at it. As if they think that somehow the boss won't notice that they haven't gotten anything done, or the boss won't notice that as soon as he walks in the room, they start like moving their mouse and like hitting their keyboard, like they're being very diligent. You know, I used to do things like that in school. I'm sure my teachers knew exactly what was happening. But you know, when the boss is in the room, people will tend to get more stuff done. When my teachers were in the room, I was a terrible student. I hated school. I wanted to be outside playing. 
But when my teachers were there, hanging over me, making sure, when my mom was there making sure that I got my homework done, it got done. I was a diligent student. But you know, for you and I, God's always watching. We ought to remember that. And because of that, because all of our ways are before Him, we really ought to keep His precepts and His testimonies. But you know, all of it, it starts with where is your treasure? You know, David treasured his relationship with God. He treasured his time with God. His focus was on God. His focus was on God's Word. Seven times a day, he would praise God because of God's righteous judgments. You know, you really begin to put your focus on God, on loving Him, on your relationship with Him. You know what's going to happen with your ways? You know what's going to happen with the things that you do? They're naturally going to tend toward following after God. Because that's where your focus is. That's where you, you want to go. Because you love Him and you love His Word, your path is going to go that direction. But you know, if you begin to get your focus off of that and get your focus onto the things of this life, the things of this world, if you begin to put your treasure here, that's where your focus is going to go. It's where your ways are going to tend to. This evening, where is your treasure? Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee.